Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It was great to be at the event last night and meet so many of you, and great to be with you today and worship the living Christ together. Um, I always like to start off with a story, and my story this morning is this. It's an old Russian proverb, and it goes like this. There's a peasant alone digging out in his field, trying to pull up stumps and rocks so that he can begin to plow and plant again for the next harvest. And uh, he pulls up what he thinks is a rock, and in fact it's uh, an old vase. And he pulls that vase out of the ground and begins to rub it a bit, and out comes a genie. And the genie meets the peasant and says, I grant you one wish. Now a lot of people say, why just one wish? Well, it's a poor Russian proverb, so just one Just one wish. One wish, and so uh, he says, be careful with your wish. Because this one wish has one condition with it. And that is, whatever I grant you, I will give twice as much of to your neighbor. And so the peasant stands and thinks and ponders for a long time. And he ponders and he ponders, and then he says very quietly to the genie, I know what I want. I want you to pluck out one of my eyes. Envy. That's what it does to us. It it, it will allow us even to destroy ourselves so that we can take more away from somebody else. It's a disease, right? Among the seven deadlies, it was called the green-eyed monster. It's the thing that makes us sick of soul. Interestingly, this psalm today, you've been doing a series on the psalms, and so Mark asked me to try to dovetail into that. And this psalm today is written by really a hero in Israel's worship. Asaph, the great leader of choirs and singers in Israel, and yet he's describing his own struggle with envy. And so for us as Christians, one thing we can know if that's where we are, inside a relationship with Christ, before God in that way, envy is still going to be a challenge for us. And if we're not, uh, then we can have hope as well that there's grace for us to come into Jesus and find forgiveness and hope and healing for our envy. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Hear now the word of the Lord there printed for you in your bulletins. Let's read it together. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, 
These are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Mm. Dear Father in heaven, you have given us every good and perfect gift from above. In having your love, having your life in your Son who came and died and rose again for us, in having your Spirit, Father, given to us, poured out from you and the Son, Holy Spirit, you are here with us now. In having you, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have everything. We have all that we need in the community, in the life, in the hope, in the worship of your church. And yet, Father, we wrestle with envy. We want what we do not have. We do not value what we do have. Our envy keeps us from rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who are weeping. We end up weeping when we watch others rejoice and rejoicing silently when we watch them weep. Father, forgive us. Father, our envy, which is rooted in our self-pity, which is rooted in our self-centeredness, keeps us, Father, from reaching out, from loving those around us and drawing them in, asking them to come and drink your cup and eat your bread, rather than craving to eat their bread and drink their cup. Father, forgive us. And help us, satisfy us down to our core more and more with you and with the true community of your people. And may we know that the preferred future truly is ahead, fullness of life with you forever. 
and new heavens and new earth. And we ask this all, Jesus, you to press this down and make this real to us today. Amen. We all struggle with envy. It's, it's real, you know. It's something that we've all caught like a virus, sort of like a strep virus that a child may have from her, his or her mother and carries out from the womb and just carries on into life. You know, some things are hard to catch. I remember how hard it was for me to learn how to catch a baseball and then, and then in junior high school to learn how to blow a horn and uh, how hard it was in college to actually get anything understood at all out of upper level calculus and that knocked me out of a math major really quickly and then organic chemistry knocked me out of a chemistry major really quickly. Hard things to catch, right? Uh, but envy's not hard to catch. It's like a virus. It's like a cold. We just catch it so easily. What is envy? Not just coveting what your neighbor has. Not just longing for something you don't have, but being sick inside, green as it were, in the core of your being with illness of soul because you desire it so badly. It's not just wanting to grab something somebody else has. It's a desire to bat it and knock it out of their hands and then take it and run away with it. When you think of envy, right, you think of Snow White and the Queen, who's fairest in the land, who's the most beautiful, adored by all of her subjects. And then the mirror tells her, no, there's another who's more beautiful queen, Snow White. And then the queen, right, is not just undone by a greater beauty that she longs to have for herself. She has to destroy Snow White in the process. That's what envy does to us. It withers us from the inside. You know, my wife is so great to have been married to me for 31 years. There's been a lot of challenge in that being married to somebody like me and one of those challenges is she loves to to make a home beautiful especially the landscape outside and I'm all for that too I just have two problems number one I hate yard work number two I'm a preacher and so I have no money to pay for yard work so it's a problem for us and so every time we try to grow something and get out there and landscape something it falls apart like one time we just made these beautiful new flowers and perennials all in the front of our yard, and they begin to wither as soon as we put them in the ground, you know. That's what envy does to us. It just withers us, even as we're trying to plant our lives in fresh ways. Think about the words of the psalm. Here's Asaph or somebody writing in his honor, another singer or poet in Israel. And he starts off with this amazing, right, profession of faith. It's saying in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's like a creedal statement. I believe in God the Father Almighty. It's sort of an Old Testament version of that. God is good to Israel. He blesses us who are pure in heart, who are singularly focused upon knowing Him and His love. But immediately He has a but. But as for me, envy struck me. And you move from verse 1 to a creedal expression with this butt of envy coming in right away. And now he gets down to verse 12 or so, and he says what? This is 
all in vain. What is this about? Is this any good at all for me? Verse 12 reads, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in witches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This is what envy does to us. That's the problem we all face. We've caught envy in one way or another. Some of us have a more activated envy, but we all got it. The problem becomes more complicated though, right? Because there's reasons to be envious. There just are. There's enough data points in anybody's life for any of us sitting in these pews to be envious of somebody else. We see somebody else's car. We see somebody else's job. We see somebody else's home. We see somebody else's spouse. We see somebody else's body, their athleticism, their intellectualism, their investment portfolios, their personality and their friendliness and openness. There's always something to envy constantly from those around us. But Asaph is here talking about, right, a special kind of envy that afflicts us, a mutated form, a severe form, and that is when God's people when Christians envy those outside of a relationship with God. Why? He says, well, because they've got all this stuff. They eat what they want. They're still healthy and strong, stronger than we are. They do what they want. They say what they want. They experience life the way they want. There's a sense of freedom out from being under God's rule and demands that Asaph sees in the wicked, and he sees them prospering and flourishing. There's really some, some, if you will, if you'll just allow me to say this, some gospel profanity in these verses, okay? And let me tell you what I mean by that. Asaph is this leader. He's, he's, he's not just a pastor. He's a leader of leaders of leaders in all of Israel's worship. And so he's writing this, or somebody is writing this for him or in his honor, and he does something stunning, and we just sort of miss it real easily in English. Twice in these early verses he says, the wicked, those outside of God, they have shalom. That would have been profane to say. In ancient Israel. Because shalom was just for God's people. It was God's special blessing to give His people through His grace. What is shalom? It's His peace. It's His overarching blessing that penetrates and digs down deep into your soul and catches hold into the middle of the brokenness that you face in your own life or the brokenness of your community. You had God's shalom. A sense that you were at peace with Him through His grace and mercy. And that He was going to work out for you a preferred and blessed future. You could trust Him in the middle of the brokenness of your own soul. And the brokenness of your community. And the brokenness of your nation. God could be trusted because He blessed His people with shalom. But twice here in these early verses, it doesn't translate so much into English. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, the shalom of the wicked, literally, 
Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, always at shalom and in shalom. Their riches increase. See, Asaph is saying, God, this is supposed to be our special way, our blessing from you. And the wicked, the people outside you that don't bow to your authority, don't listen to your commands, they seem to have more real peace, real prosperity, real blessing than we ever do. Now, what's the danger of that when it really starts to flare up in your soul? The two great presenting symptoms of envy, first of all, are that you begin to doubt that faith matters at all. You begin to say like Asaph, what does it matter? I've kept my heart pure. My hands are clean. What does it matter? Does it matter at all? And the second presenting symptom that goes right along with it, it's like a twin symptom, is we end up wanting to live like those outside of the church, outside of those, outside of the community who have relationship with God. We start saying, and again, it's a little bit hidden here, verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. In other words, the picture there is of, of those that are watching the wicked prosper saying, I, I want to go back. I want to be with them. Literally, the Hebrew speaks about, I want to drink the cup of the wicked down to its bottom. What is the goal of the gospel in Old Testament era and now fully in the New Testament era? That we have been given the cup of God's blessing. That we've been given something in Christ that absolutely fills us and satisfies us and it's a cup that God gives to us and puts in our hands and it's a cup that we want to invite the world around us to come share in and drink down and be satisfied in but what envy does to us is to say as the church is to say ah, don't come drink our cup we want to go drink yours Now, where's the hope? Where's the grace here? Where does the message begin to turn? It turns when Asaph says two things. First, I began to consider the generations around me. If I would speak thusly, it would hinder the generations around me. Let me read the verse just so that you hear it directly. Not the Paul Juan paraphrase, but the Word of God. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When do parents often begin to change our habits? When we realize that the way we're living really is destructive for our children. The secondhand smoke. The outburst of rage and anger. The disengagement because of an addictive pattern in our lives in which we're just not present at all. The workaholism that takes us completely away from meaningful relationship with our children. Whatever the things are, some moments occur where light breaks in and we say, if I keep living this way, 
I'm going to hinder my children badly. Asaph is saying as a father in Israel to all the children of God worshiping, if I stay in this place of envy, I am going to hinder the growth and the hope of the children of God around me. You might not have Mark's role or Adriana's role or Leslie's role being a leader in the church or being an elder or a deacon in the church, but but every one of us have people in our world looking around us who are watching, who are saying, is this real, this faith? Is there really a hope here worth having? Is there really something at the center of all the brokenness that gives me life and hope and purpose and joy? I've been a Christian almost all of my life. I've been a pastor for about 30 years and something my wife will say to me in love, 31 years of marriage, is Paul, I need to see you having a greater joy in the Lord, a contentment in the Lord, rather than being moved and undone by all the circumstances you see or all the ways that you see the church struggling and failing, I need to see you have an enduring joy in the Lord and our children need it and our grandchildren are going to need it. And she's not being difficult with me when she says that. She is expressing a good and right desire. And it breaks me. We're ready for grace in our envious places when we say, it's not just me that's affected here by my envy. I don't just turn green. I'm turning others green around me. But the real source of grace, right, is not just that awareness that we're harming others. It's that God loves us in the middle of that envy and invites us into his sanctuary. What does Asaph say? I, I I I couldn't understand the end of things from their beginning till I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. The real center of grace is not just realizing my actions are affecting others in the community, but that God meets me in His sanctuary and says, I love you and I forgive you and I welcome you afresh. And I want to renew you. You know, statistics are demonstrating, I don't know about your congregation, but just in general, statistics are now demonstrating that the average church attendance from a committed Christian in an evangelical church, so somebody who is openly expressing faith in Christ and saying, I want to be a part of a gospel preaching and living community, and and my life is centered around that, that the average number of attendances per month now for that kind of person is 1.5 Sundays a month. When Mark encourages you, when your leaders encourage you to come to worship, when you hear a denominational leader up there, I'm not trying to guilt you, okay? Okay, why that's so significant is This is where you find renewal. This is where God meets you afresh. And you can be honest. 
Asaph says, I'm envious. You can say, God, I'm envious. Have mercy on me. A, a young woman stands up there and tells us in a testimony how God broke her and showed her and revealed her envy. We can be honest about that. All the ways that we do that. But God loves us and say, I welcome you here. I minister to you here. I sent my son to die for your envy in the past and in the present and in the future. And I want you to eat and drink of that love. I want to renew you with my love here. Now what flows from that? That renewed sense of community and especially that renewed sense of God's love to us in worship. We get reoriented, right? This is the time, if you haven't been already, your children haven't been already, you're going to be going to orientation, right? I used to hate that word because it meant summer was over, right? Hated that word. Maybe parents are saying, thank God for orientation. But orientation means, right, summer's over because we're getting reshaped, re oriented, reconnected to what is ahead, but it's not a grind of school that God wants us to get reconnected to. It is the real flow of life. What kinds of reorientation happen as we experience the love of God afresh in worship? As we gather with His people, as we read His Word on our own, as we pray in that quiet place, as we are around a noisy breakfast or dinner table with our families and briefly having a word of scripture and prayer. All those different avenues of worship. What happens? You get reoriented. You see who the wicked are afresh. Those outside of the hope of the gospel. Not especially evil people. Just all of us, where we all are without that grace connection to God through Jesus. And where are the wicked? Without hope. Without ultimate purpose. Without direction. And what happens to us in worship, see, instead of having to keep giving ourselves towards self-pity, right? We know the ultimate piteous love that is full of mercy and kindness of God to us. And so we can move out in pity toward others. We don't have to try to bat away what's in their hands and grab it and run. We can share what we have full hands and hearts of Jesus. His love. His beauty. His wonder. Instead of envying those around us outside the faith, we can pray for them and care for them and love them. I was just at a conference recently at Wheaton College, at Billy Graham Center for Evangelism, and, and different denominational groups were talking about keys to, to, to the growth in their churches. And one man just stood up and said, We're not, we don't have some great new program, but, but our churches are beginning to see in fresh ways. Many people come to Christ, and, and one of the things we can trace it to is just people have started praying for their neighbors. He said, I don't know how well this works on Long Island, by the way, since I've walked around Mark's neighborhood, but humor me here <laughs> for a moment. You know, in, in a basic American neighborhood, right, what do you have? You have streets laid out in grids, and you have, 
And, and, and so the guy said, what we've just asked our people to do is just make a tic-tac-toe board on a piece of paper and put your house in the center. And then start trying to fill in the names around that on the tic-tac-toe board. Actually get to know your neighbor's names. And what are some of the needs in their life. And, and, and begin to try to connect with them and see if they know Jesus. And if they don't, pray for them. And if they do, that they can grow in Him. And he said, we're just seeing all kinds of people come into the life of the church and then into a relationship with Christ because people are just simply starting to pray for their neighbors. I don't know how you do that on Long Island with everything stretched out. and You'll have to make your own shape for that. Pastor Mark can do that. Spaghetti, right. But we start to pity and love the wicked. We get reoriented. We realize that they desperately need a hope like we have a hope. We start to be reoriented toward ourselves, right? What does Asaph say? When I'm in that envious place, it's like I'm dehumanized. It's like I'm a brute beast before you. I'm like an animal. And we start to find fresh grace to put away our foolishness, our animalistic tendencies. And to live as image bearers of God. With hope and with joy in fresh ways. And with satisfaction. And then finally we gain a new reorientation toward God. He really is the treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? In earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My heart... And my flesh, they may fail, but you are my cup, my chosen portion forever. We read from Genesis 30 earlier. Mark asked me for a companion text. You may say, why did we read that? It's the story of Jacob and his wives, Leah and Rachel, and their struggles and Leah's envy of Rachel over her beauty and that Jacob desires her and Rachel's envy over Leah that she can bear children and Rachel can't. And then so Rachel gives a handmaiden to bear children for her and then Leah gives another handmaiden to bear children. And so now 10 sons have been born and at least one daughter to Jacob. But Rachel's not had the privilege of bearing any of them and in her culture that was... Everything. Her beauty really meant nothing. Childbearing and childbearing of sons was everything. And so finally, she is able to give birth to a son. And what does she say there in Genesis 30 in one of the most haunting verses to me in all of Scripture? I now have a son. I will name him Joseph, meaning may God Give me another one. Wow. Wow. If we're living for what we hope the Lord will give us, even beautiful things like bearing a child and raising him up in the way of the Lord, we will only die in our envy and dissatisfaction. But if we will learn 
to cling to the beauty and the wonder and the love of God that is even more magnified at times in the middle of our brokennesses and in our other prayers not being answered the way we want in the times we want. Then we are preparing ourselves for eternity. Then we are living the fullest life available to us now and we are preparing ourselves to live in new heavens in new earth where we will not be talking about eclipses anymore, right? Because there will be no more moon and sun as we know it. There will only be the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the light of the world in fullness in new heavens and new earth. We will be basking in His glory. We will be celebrating a new creation with no more night, no more tears, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more sin in our lives or pressed on us from the outside. But ultimately the treasure will be God himself. We desperately need that reorientation. You know, people like to ask, why did God allow evil in the world? There isn't a good answer for that. Scripture speaks to it in certain ways. One of the ways that Scripture speaks to it is, if there had not been evil in the world and sin in the world, then there would have been no presence of Christ in the world and we would not have seen the full extent of God's love on display. Well, then we say, okay, God, if that's true, why do you still allow evil in the world after the cross and resurrection? Why is there still sin in the world and sin in me and brokenness in the world and brokenness in me? Hard question still that I don't have full answers to, but at least one of them has. That in the middle of my brokenness and even my own sinfulness, I can see in greater display the beauty of God and His love to me as the ultimate treasure. Not the stuff, but God Himself. We started with a story. I'll leave you with a story. Um, a pastor friend of mine, a mentor of mine, loves to tell the story of uh, a woman in his congregation. She grew up in the Depression era. She was the oldest of nine children. And so sheer job was to help her mother try to navigate life for the family, to make every meal, to keep the house, to, to just sort of keep this family going on the pennies and crumbs that they had. And and so she would say, though, and she loved to tell people in the congregation about this, that sometimes her mother even would surprise her. And at the end of a meal, that she didn't know how her mother had done it because she was with her all day and had been doing all the chores with her and making all the meals with her, that her mother somehow had managed secretly to make a tiny little cake or a little tart or a, a miniature little pie. And her mother would say as they were clearing the table, keep your forks. And she said we would all just squeal because something amazing was coming that we didn't even know was coming. And, and so this woman now late in her life said, Pastor, when it's time for me to be buried, I want you to do my funeral and I, I don't care what you all sing. I don't care what the scriptures are. I don't care what kind of dress my family puts in me, but I want you to promise me one thing, Pastor. And he said, what's that? I want them to bury me 
with my fork. (laughs) To say that absolutely the best is yet to come. God is your portion. He is your cup. He is your fullness. You can enjoy him now. Your envy can be healed more and more like Asaph's. We can actually be full of pity and kindness to those outside of Christ rather than trying to steal their lives from them or wish they were ours. We can move toward them in love. We can be people of fullness and joy and we can know that the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We praise you. We exalt you. And we pray that you would in your kindness heal us more and more of our envy. That we would see it for what it is. That you would give us grace to help us realize it doesn't just affect us. It affects those we love around us in the community. Have mercy on us, Lord. And may we come here to worship and find forgiveness and new fullness and new life and new joy in you. May we be reoriented. And may we know that the best is yet to come. Heal us, Lord. Renew us. Feed us now on the riches of your portion at this table. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.